you can host the best backyard barbecue. When you find a professional on Angie to make your backyard the best around. Connect with skilled professionals to get all your home projects done well. Inside to outside. Repairs to renovations. Get started on the Angie app or visit Angie.com today. You can do this when you Angie that. Achieving a gorgeous grin from home isn't a total mystery with Bite Clear Aligners. Just don't be surprised if all of your sleuthing friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Bite Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available on digital. Crow portrays an ex-homicide detective, unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. From the Jill Schwartz Memorial Library here in Sultry, Savannah, this is Obscure Season 3, Wuthering Heights. I am your host, your friend, your ear lover, your literary mansplainer-in-chief and Georgianologist Michael Ian Black, celebrated Savannian. Now that I have participated in the 15th annual Savannah Book Fair, which took place this weekend, and I suppose is still taking place as I record this, yesterday I gave a little extemporizing there at the Trinity Church over in Telfair Square, where I was invited to speak upon my latest tome, A Better Man, a mostly serious letter to my son, my son who turned or turns, 21 on this day. The wife and I said, boy, boy, let us take you out to celebrate your 21st birthday on this day. He said, no, I will be going out with friends, cavorting, drinking, undoubtedly. Um, But I would like to come over for brunch, fix me a brunch, which we did, and... uh, He has just left. He's off cupcake shopping with the missus. He's providing cupcakes for his friends later, as well as some free drinks, courtesy of his old man. And then later this week, we will be taking him out for some fine southern dining on the river. 21 years ago, my wife Martha was in discomfort, some labor, the early portion of her labor, or maybe, well, let me think what time it is that I'm recording this. Yeah, I mean, the earliest part of her labor, she had gone uh, into labor earlier that day. This was a long 
process. And uh, we were living in Peekskill, New York at that time in our first home, the first home we ever purchased with proceeds from the Pets.com sock puppet. Stuff things. I love stuff things. And she'd gone into labor earlier in the day, but, you know, wasn't proceeding very quickly at all. And uh, the people there said, well, maybe you should come back later when it's a little bit more advanced because you're just going to be sitting around here in the hospital. You don't want to do that. So we did what you do when you're expecting your first child. We looked, we consulted the manuals and they said, well, maybe walk around a little to speed it along. Maybe get some greasy food in you to speed it along. We got some McDonald's, I believe, that day. And then maybe it was right around this time, maybe a little bit later. I cannot recall exactly. We checked ourselves into the hospital and hunkered down for an evening of birthing. That was 21 years ago when my son entered this terrible hellscape we call life. And then if, uh, yeah, 21. And then uh, a few months later, the Twin Towers fell down and that sort of marked the beginning, I would say, of his cultural history. You know, there's certain markers, I think, in one's life that kind of are mileposts, you know, that you hang your hat on. And while he was too young to have experienced that in any meaningful way, that was the milepost upon which the new world was erected. And he has been the recipient. And I want, I want to say benefactor, but it's hard to say that because it would imply that it's been good. Uh, the recipient of that, to borrow a phrase, new world order, the life that he has lived in the 21st century, the childhood that he has had, is very different than the one I had in some ways, in some ways, of course, the same. That being said, he seems like a happy young man, happy enough, happier than I think I was at age 21, about to, uh, about to have my first television show when I was 21 years old and not very happy for it. Not because of it, but because I was a miserable cuss. Miserable cusses seem to populate much of Wuthering Heights, that fine American estate. In fact, the home as we have found it in the beginning of this book to this point is, is populated almost entirely with miserable cusses from Heathcliff on down. And we have spent the last several episodes trying to sort of piece together, page by page, exactly what turned Heathcliff from a mischievous young lad with maybe a slightly arrogant streak, but a Huckleberry Finnish love of adventure into the sullen, ashen creature that we meet at the beginning of this tale. Well... When last we left him, he was in the midst of a full-blown adventure. He and Kathy had gone sneaking off to the neighbor's house down the road and just been kind of spying on the neighbor kids and seeing what dainty little pusses they are. And uh, then they, they sort of got found out. The, 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 the dog was let loose, chomped down on Kathy's ankle. The servant came and found them there. 
And uh, when last we left, the servant had said to the Lintons, and this is Mr. Linton, the head of that estate, don't lay down your gun because this kid was here. He was casing the joint. They were going to murder us in our sleep. And, uh, and, and says to Heathcliff, you'll go to the gallows for this. Mr. Linton, sir, don't lay by your gun. And so we resume our tale in Chapter 6 of Wuthering Heights. No, no, Robert, said the old fool. The rascals knew that yesterday was my rent day. They thought to have me cleverly. Come in, I'll furnish them a reception. There, John, fasten the chain. Give Skulker some water, Jenny, to beard a magistrate in his stronghold, and on the Sabbath, too. Where will their insolence stop? Oh, my dear Mary, look here. Don't be afraid. It is but a boy. Yet the villain scowls so plainly in his face. Would it not be a kindness to the country to hang him at once, before he shows his nature in acts as well as features. So uh, we have been uh, through this several times already. This is a recurring motif regarding Heathcliff that his dark features uh, seem to indicate a dark character. Remember, Heathcliff was picked up on the streets, parentless, alone, brought to the Earnshaw estate, and dressed in fine clothes, but they could not, those clothes, disguise his rough character. And, uh, you know, is it, a, is it a racist thing? I don't know. I, yeah, I don't know that it is or it isn't. Hard to say exactly. It's certainly racial, you know. But needless to say, he has been discriminated against just in this manner his entire life. He pulled me under the chandelier. This is Heathcliff now talking. He pulled me under the chandelier, and Mrs. Linton placed her spectacles on her nose and raised her hands in horror. The cowardly children crept nearer. Also, Isabella, lisping. Frightful thing! Put him in the cellar, Papa! He's exactly like the son of a fortune-teller that stole my tame feather. Isn't he, Edgar? That, I guess, Isabella is the... Uh, is the young child, the young Linton child, one of the two who was weeping when Kathy and Heathcliff were spying on them. He's a frightful thing. <laughs> oh, he's terrible. Put him in the cellar, Papa. He's exactly like the son of the fortune teller that stole my tame feather, isn't he, Edgar? While they examined me, Kathy came round. She heard the last speech and laughed. Yes, as I just did. Edgar Linton. After an inquisitive stare, collected sufficient wit to recognize her. They see us at church, you know, though we seldom meet them elsewhere. That's Miss Earnshaw, he whispered to his mother, and look how Skulker has bitten her, how her foot bleeds. Miss Earnshaw, nonsense, cried the dame. Miss Earnshaw, scouring the country with a gypsy. And yet, my dear, the child is in mourning, surely it is, and she may be lamed for life. "'What capable carelessness in her brother!' exclaimed Mr. Linton, turning from me to Catherine. "'I've understood from Shielders—that was the curate, sir, the curate of the, of the town. "'So Shielders is the curate. There's a lot of people here, okay? "'But what you need to know, what you need to understand is the whole Linton mob "'has assembled there, let's say, in the parlor or the drawing room, "'examining the wretched children who've been brought in, cuffed round the neck, by the servant boy, 
And the dog, Skulker, great name, by the way, Skulker the dog. Skulker. And they're trying to assess the situation. Who are these people? And now Mrs. Linton has recognized Catherine as the neighbor girl, but they don't seem to know who Heathcliff is. And they don't understand why the neighbor girl would be skulking around, skulker, uh, skulking around the, the estate with a gypsy. So uh, there is something racist here, okay? Let's say racist against gypsies, the Roma people. So I've understood from Shielders, that was the curate, sir, that he lets her grow up in absolute heathenism. But who is this? Where did she pick up this companion? Oh, I declare he is that strange acquisition my late neighbor made in his journey to Liverpool. A little Lasker, or an American, or Spanish castaway. A wicked boy at all events, remarked the old lady, and quite unfit for a decent house. Did you notice his language, Linton? I'm shocked that my children should have heard it. I recommenced cursing. Don't be angry, Nelly. This is Heathcliff again. I recommenced cursing. Don't be angry, Nelly. And so Robert was ordered to take me off. I refused to go without Cathy. He dragged me into the garden, pushed the lantern into my hand, assured me that Mr. Earnshaw should be informed of my behavior, meaning Hindley, not the dead Mr. Earnshaw, and bidding me march directly secured the door again. So they've kept Cathy essentially hostage there. They've kidnapped poor Cathy and sent Heathcliff on his way. The curtains were still looped up at one corner, and I resumed my station as spy. Because if Catherine had wished to return, I intended shattering their great glass panes to a million of fragments unless they let her out. She sat on the sofa quietly. Mrs. Linton took off the grey cloak of the dairymaid, which we had borrowed for our excursion. Shaking her head and expostulating with her, I suppose. She was a young lady, and they made a distinction between her treatment and mine. Then the woman servant brought a basin of warm water and washed her feet, and Mr. Linton mixed a tumbler of negus, N-E-G-U-S. Well, let's crank up the research machine and see what negus is. N-E-G-U. Not even a footnote in this edition. I mean, it's just a thing that I guess people are supposed to know. It's a hot drink of port, sugar, lemon, and spices. Negus. Negus, it's pronounced. Not negus. 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 Like Negan in The Walking Dead. Uh, the kind of drink my son is now of age to drink. A hot drink of port, sugar, lemon, and spices. I would encourage him to order a round of negus for his friends. Uh, okay, so they, they, they bring her this drink. They're trying to make her feel a little better. They've taken off the dirty cloak. And Isabella emptied a plateful of cakes into her lap, and Edgar stood gaping at a distance. Afterwards, they dried and combed her beautiful hair and gave her a pair of enormous slippers and wheeled her to the fire, and I left her, as merry as she could be, dividing her food between the little dog and Skulker, whose nose—I guess there's two dogs—the little dog and Skulker, whose nose she pinched as she ate— and kindling a spark of spirit in the vacant blue eyes of the Lintons, a dim reflection from her own enchanting face. I saw they were full of stupid admiration. She is so immeasurably superior to them, to everybody on earth. Is she not, Nellie? This is putting me in the mind, I have to say. Now, remember, this is Heathcliff narrating to Mrs. Dean, who is narrating to Lockwood, who is, you know, telling us the tale. So, again, we're in multiple narrators here in the story. 
but at least it's sort of moving all the action forward. So it's not nearly as strange, I think, as it was in the land of Frankenstein. But it's, it is calling to mind the relationship between, uh, what's his face, young Victor Frankenstein and his cousin, uh, sort of, Elizabeth, sort of, his sister, sort of, who he was meant to marry, you know, Elizabeth, right? Is that her name? Before she was, or, well, she was eventually, of course, killed by the creature. And we know that um, Catherine will also meet a similar fate. Uh, We have two dead girls that we're speaking of now, young Elizabeth, young Catherine, leaving behind two miserable husks of men, Victor Frankenstein and our own Heathcliff. Let us mull on that for a moment as we sip our negus and then return in a moment on Obscure. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Back on Obscure... Season 3, Wuthering Heights, and just, you know, finding little parallels between tales, Frankenstein and Wuthering Heights, and then here and there between Obscure, uh, Jude the Obscure and Wuthering Heights, and what have you. But look, we're all in it together, aren't we? Aren't we, pals? I mean, if we're going on this literary journey together, let us find similarities and differences between the books, and in this book, certainly... There are some similarities to Frankenstein, though the tale is better told. There is horror, of course. There is uh, an apparition in Wuthering Heights. There is misery, and there are dead girls. So, you know, probably more to come. So anyway, uh, Heathcliff is uh, exclaiming to Mrs. Dean that Kathy is superior to the Linton children. And in fact, to everybody on earth, is she not Nellie? 
There will more come of this business than you reckon on, I answered, covering him up and extinguishing the light. You are incurable, Heathcliff, and Mr. Hindley will have to proceed to extremity, see if he won't. My words came truer than I desired. The luckless adventure made Earnshaw furious, and then Mr. Linton, to mend matters, paid us a visit himself on the morrow, and read the young master such a lecture on the road he guided his family that he was stirred to look about him in earnest. Heathcliff received no flogging, but he was told that the first word he spoke to Miss Catherine should ensure a dismissal, and Mrs. Earnshaw undertook to keep her sister-in-law in due restraint when she returned home, employing art, not force. With force, she would have found it impossible. Okay, I, I didn't really understand that last paragraph, so I'm going to reread it. I was so busy entrancing myself with Mrs. Dean's voice that I really wasn't paying any attention to the words, how I have missed reading as Mrs. Dean. Okay, so the luckless adventure made Earnshaw furious, right? That's the master of the Earnshaw. Of course, it, of course it would. And then Mr. Linton, to mend matters, came over to the house the next day and read the young master, meaning Earnshaw, such a lecture on the road he guided his family that he was stirred to look about him in earnest, saying, saying he, he, Linton came over and said, Earnshaw, you fuck, you're not leading this family the way your father would have, and you stupid, miserable, ingrate son of a bitch, these kids are running roughshod all over the place, and everybody's going to go to hell, and you're going to go to hell with them. And then you know, Earnshaw's looking around like, what the hell? Heathcliff, okay, as a result of this, received no flogging, but... He was told that the first word he spoke to Miss Catherine should ensure a dismissal. Now, I'm not sure what that means. The first word he spoke... Oh, he's saying, uh, don't even speak to Miss Catherine or you're going to be out on your ear. And then Mrs. Earnshaw, the nameless Mrs. Earnshaw, Hinton's wife, undertook to keep her sister-in-law in due restraint when she returned home, saying when Mrs. So when Catherine showed up, Mrs. Earnshaw sort of trundled her off to the room and, and you know, said, calm down here, here's, here's some tea, here's some biscuits, here's some digestives, employing art, not force, because with force she would have found it impossible. Yes, because of Catherine's spirit. And that is the end of chapter six. Let us begin chapter seven. Kathy's, uh, okay, so I guess, uh, okay, so this is Mrs. Dean talking again. So, Kathy stayed at Thrushcross Grange five weeks till Christmas. Okay, so, so they basically just kept her out of the house. They said, Kathy, you're going over here. Heathcliff, you're going over here. You guys, you know, we're separating you two like you were misbehaving in homeroom. By that time, her ankle was thoroughly cured and her manners much improved. The mistress visited her often in the interval and commenced her plan of reform by trying to raise her self-respect with fine clothes and flattery, which she took readily, so that instead of a wild, hatless little savage jumping into the house and rushing to squeeze us all breathless, there lighted from a handsome black pony a very dignified person, with brown ringlets falling from the cover of a feathered beaver, and a long cloth habit, which she was obliged to hold up with both hands that she might sail in. Okay, so, I guess they have, uh, they've tamed young Kathy Earnshaw, or so they think, because I think you and I know 
better that a spirit such as hers cannot be changed. We have learned that lesson time and again in these books, certainly in Jude the Obscure. The ladies were the ladies were the ladies, meaning they were who they were from the moment we met them and all the way through. Sort of. But people don't really change. And I think we know that Kathy, though she may appear reformed, is probably not. Nevertheless, she comes in from the black pony. She's dressed in finery. She's got the cover of a feathered beaver hat, and she looks wonderful. Hindley lifted her from her horse, exclaiming delightedly, Why, Kathy, you are quite a beauty. I should sincerely have known you. You look like a lady now. Isabella Linton is not to be comp- well. I'm I'm sort of reading. Okay, so I, yeah, I, I mean, you know, it's hard to change voices. I I probably shouldn't even do it, but here I am, and then getting caught up in the changing of voices. But Hindley lifted her from her horse, exclaiming delightedly, "Why, Kathy, you are quite a beauty! I should scarcely have known you. You look like a lady now. Isabella Linton is not to be compared with her, is she, Francis? Oh, it's Francis is her the wife's name. Okay, so now we now we know. It took a long enough time. Isabella has not her natural advantages, replied his wife, but she must mind and not grow wild again here. Ellen, help Miss Catherine off with her things. Stay, dear, you will disarrange your curls. Let me untie your hat. I remove the habit, and there shone forth, beneath a grand plaid. And now we do have a footnote, so let us go to the back there and find what a plaid is. A grand plaid, a silk frock, etc., for... A's grand plaid silk frock, which implies that the silk frock was plaid rather than that the silk frock looked out from under a grand plaid overgarment. One might note at this point the fineness of E.B.'s observation, meaning Emily Bronte's observation and notation of gestures, appearances, etc. when they are relevant to her story. So we're getting a little little uh, literary criticism here in the footnotes. This is a first. The author of the appendix is saying you might note the unobtrusiveness of her realism of presentation. Irene Cooper Willis deals with this aspect of Emily Bronte's technique in The Authorship of Wuthering Heights. If you are interested, that book was published by the Hogarth Press in London in 1936. So you can mark that for further reading if you are so inclined. All of that to say it was a plaid skirt or something uh, just like it. Fine. I remove the habit and there shone forth beneath a grand plaid silk frock white trousers, and burnished shoes, and while her eyes sparked joyfully when the dogs came bounding up to welcome her, she dare hardly touch them, lest they should fawn upon her splendid garments. Yet were it only so easy, uh, you recall in last episode, my dogs were driving me up a goddamn tree with their yawping and barking. They have been quiet thus far in the episode... Uh, They had been quiet, for which I am grateful. She kissed me gently. I was all flower-making the Christmas cake, and it would not have done to give me a hug. And then she looked round for Heathcliff. Mr. and Mrs. Earnshaw watched anxiously their meeting, thinking it would enable them to judge, in some measure, what grounds they had for hoping to succeed in separating the two friends. Heathcliff was hard to discover at first. 
If he were careless and uncared for before Catherine's absence, he had been ten times more so since. Nobody but I even did him the kindness to call him a dirty boy and bid him wash himself once a week. And children of his age seldom have a natural pleasure in soap and water. Therefore, I mean, so he is, he's like a Huckleberry Finn. He's just a ragamuffin, you know? We must remember now that there was some question as to how old he was at the time of this portion of the tale, and it seems like he was maybe 12 or 13, something like that. Therefore, not to mention his clothes, which had seen three months' service in mire and dust, and his thick, uncombed hair, the surface of his face and hands was dismally beclouded. He might well skulk behind the settle on beholding such a bright, graceful damsel enter the house, instead of a rough-headed counterpart of himself as he expected. So she's, you know, you know, as girls tend to do, she's, she grew up first. She went over to Thrushcross Grange, that fine American institution, and emerged a young lady in her beaver hat and grand plaid and all sorts of finery. Well, now, as if to mock me, the younger one, Squash, has entered the room and is now making some sort of devious noise. And there, I don't know if you heard it, but a little bit of a bark. What do you want? Who are you? Always torturing the cat. So sometimes uh, Squash likes to wrestle with the cat, Alfalfa. He comes in here, he bites him about the neck and head and the face, and Alfalfa swats at him. And uh, they seem to enjoy it. Both, both animals seem to enjoy the wrestling. But it is as uh, Heathcliff and Catherine maybe were wont to do before this instant with my own ragamuffin dog Squash playing the role of Heathcliff. That, I mean, we, he was a rescue, you know, just like Heathcliff was. And we dragged him from the streets and brought him to a, a state of fine and gentle manners where he encountered the uncultivated cat, Alfalfa, though certainly more cultivated than he. And now they are wrestling upon the daybed here in the Jill Schwartz Memorial Library. Anywho, uh, so she's looking for Heathcliff, and uh, she says, Is Heathcliff not here? she demanded, pulling off her gloves and displaying fingers wonderfully whitened with doing nothing and staying indoors. Heathcliff, you may come forward, cried Mr. Hindley, enjoying his discomfiture and gratified to see what a forbidding young blackguard he would be compelled to present himself. You may come and wish Miss Catherine welcome like the other servants. <laughs> so now Heathcliff is no better than a servant and perhaps even worse because his own station in the household is less defined than theirs. Cathy, Catching a glimpse of her friend in his concealment, flew to embrace him. She bestowed seven or eight kisses on his cheek within the second, and then stopped, and drawing back, burst into a laugh, exclaiming, Why, how very black and cross you look, and how, how funny and grim. But that's because I'm used to Edgar and Isabella Linton. Well, Heathcliff, have you forgotten me? She had some reason to put the question, for shame and pride threw double gloom over his countenance and kept him immovable. Well, there's that word countenance that we also so readily found in 
Frankenstein, a word I have grown to hate. Shake hands, Heathcliff, said Mr. Earnshaw, condescendingly, once in a way that is permitted. <laughs> God, they're just dicks to Heathcliff. No wonder Heathcliff turned out to be a dick himself. When folks are a dick to you, you're going to be a dick right back at him. Negus is also a title in the Ethiopian Semitic languages. It denotes a monarch, such as the Negus Bari of the Medri Bari kingdom pre-1980, just so you know. So has double meaning there. I shall not, replied the boy, finding his tongue at last. I shall not stand to be laughed at. I shall not bear it. And he would have broken from the circle, but Miss Cathy seized him again. I did not mean to laugh at you, she said. I could not hinder myself. Heathcliff, shake hands at least. What are you sulky for? It was only that you looked odd. If you wash your face and brush your hair, it will be all right. But you are so dirty. <laughs> She gazed concernedly at the dusky finger she held in her own, and also at her dress, which she feared had gained no embellishment from its contact with his. "'You needn't have touched me,' he answered, following her eye and snatching away his hand. "'I shall be as dirty as I please, and I like to be dirty, and I will be dirty.' <laughs> I mean, you know, it's funny. Sometimes there's some funny things happening, and this is one of them. You know, it's his pride, saying, I like to be dirty, and that's how I'll be, Miss Cathy. He looks at her in her finery and see that she, he sees that she has changed. With that, he dashed head foremost out of the room amid the merriment of the master and mistress, and to the serious disturbance of Catherine, who could not comprehend how her remarks should have produced such an exhibition of bad temper. Well, I can certainly understand because I had a similar experience myself, I suppose, when I was about Heathcliff's age. I was in seventh grade, perhaps the first day of that year. Seventh grade had just started. I was maybe, oh, 12 years old or so. And uh, a boon companion of mine from the previous year, Judy Chi, Judy Chi showed up on the first day of seventh grade, looking utterly transformed. Over the summer, Judy Chi had found style, had found a haircut, had maybe, um, you know, gone through that chrysalis that young women do, certainly before young men. And when I beheld Judy Chi for the first time, I found myself feeling rather dirty in comparison and probably fled her sight just as quickly as I could. Years later, years later, I say, I caught up with Judy Chi in New York City at a sushi restaurant. We had a lovely dinner together. She told me of her life. I told her of mine. And we have not spoken since. But we know that Heathcliff and Catherine will speak further, or we would not have a tale. All right, let us end it there with Heathcliff's uh, shame, Catherine's confusion, Earnshaw's amusement, the Lintons feeling perhaps that they have um, come out the better for having caught Catherine in the jaws of young Skulker. I am going to... What am I going to do now? Well, I don't know. It's Sunday in... Savannah. The weather is fine. The book festival is ending. I suppose I will enjoy these last few hours of sunshine here 
in Sultry Savannah. And we will rejoin each other next time for another pubescent episode of Obscure. But until then, I wish you adieu. This season of Obscure is produced by me, Michael Ian Black, and Robin Lynn. Our theme music is by Craig Wedrin. If you listen and like the show, please help us out with a rating and a review. We want to be obscure, but not that obscure. It's an easy way to support the show. Thanks.